Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you're here. For those of you watching online or via the live stream or on a replay, glad you're here. Thanks for being here in person. You guys too. We are in part four of a series we're calling Per My Last Email. Part four means we've already done three parts uh, and uh, we're getting close to the end. So uh, if you've enjoyed it, it's like, oh, tears sad. It's almost over. If you've put up with it, you're like, eh, meh, whatever. And if you've missed some of it, you can definitely go check out the app and uh, catch up on, on that if you want to. Uh, in that way, uh, the title came because we've all been there, either on the receiving end or the sending end of a, a per my last email thing that went out that said, "I we've already covered this. I spent time. You've done this too. You've sent, you composed this email. You read it three times before you click send. It's just, it's a complicated, there's like a lot of complex material. And I want to make sure that I'm coming through as clearly as I can. And I send it and I get back this reply that has nothing to do with what we talked about. And I said, I've already addressed this. You ignored it. You missed it. You're ignorant or just an idiot. Please circle and get back to me. But per my last email, uh, we've already talked about this, right? And when you are the sender of that email, it's an opportunity for grace. There are other ways that you could point out and shame them, but you're, you're choosing your words carefully and trying to give them an out or an escape route to be like, I don't think you're a total idiot, but like, here we go. And then if you've been on the receiving end of that, you have enjoyed that too, because uh, you know, you're like, you, you feel like somebody's going out of their way and you, there's a, a sense of shame in there, but it's only, only internal. And you're like, thank you for not calling me out. Um, I will definitely read that last email and get back to you uh, at some point. So uh, it's been the idea of grace, grace, uh, the opportunity to get something that we don't deserve. Um, and uh, we, we define grace. If I you know, sent out little postcards and said, all right, everybody here today, define, put a definition of grace down, we'd probably get quite a few different answers. Uh, there'd be like a similar thread or theme that ran through it. And it would probably look something like this. Grace is defined as what I crave most when my guilt has been exposed. When I realize that I've done something that uh, I, I'm wrong, I'm, I'm, it's me, right? I, I forgot the payment. I know I set up auto pay, but then what happened is I changed banks and I didn't update it here. And uh, I know it's due on the fifth and I'm so sorry. If you could just, if you could just have a little bit of grace, uh, if you could take that back. Officer, I, I was on my phone, but I wasn't up to my ear talking to it. It was, I was holding it and on speakerphone. And so uh, there, and, and by the way, I see plenty of cops who do the same thing while they're driving. If you could just give me a warning, that would be kind of what I need. I need a warning as a form of grace. I, my guilt has been exposed. Of course I was speeding. Um, but what I want from you is a little, uh, don't do that again. And then I move on, right? That's what I want. So when I'm on the receiving end of it, that's, that's super helpful. Uh, but the problem is oftentimes we find ourselves on the other end of it. It's the very thing that I'm hesitant to extend when I'm the one that's been confronted with the guilt of another person. Somebody else has wronged me and they're saying I could use just a little bit of grace, right? And you're like, well, I, I have bills to pay too. Like I can't just like be the guy who forgives everybody's debts that owes me things, uh, especially when the guilt has robbed me of something that I consider to be valuable, especially the more valuable I have something and, and, and have intrinsic value on something, then when it's taken from me at the fault of somebody else, the less likely I am to extend grace in that area, right? And so that's how kind of the whole thing uh, works. And it's not necessarily a, a series on emails and, and grace in general, but specifically because 
as, this, uh, as a church, we're looking at God's grace with humanity uh, throughout history, and then also how to translate that into his grace for me personally. So it's been an exploration of the story of grace throughout the Bible, which is very, very true. Um, and on this road trip throughout the Bible, we've tr- you know tried to take some unique stops along the way that are maybe not traditional. Um, examples of God's grace are surely evident in like the life of David or the life of Paul, right? Or whatever. But I wanted to do a road trip through here and stop at obscure stops. If you've ever gotten in a car with a family and we're like, we're going to do a road trip, but we're not stopping at Yellowstone. We're not stopping at Mount Rushmore. We're stopping at Waldrug, right? Or we're stopping at the, the world's greatest, biggest ball of yarn. And you're like, how is that exciting? And yet it kind of, there's, it speaks to a little bit of a different, like that's, that's still like Americana and there's still something about uh, that you learn about the country that you live in and what it means to take a road trip through these like little obscure spots. And so we've said, we're going to look at this. We're going to go throughout this that grace doesn't start in the New Testament. Grace is a story of God's interaction with humanity forever. Um, And we're gonna look at obscure stops along the way. And the point of it is not to be like, yep, God's grace existed for those people then. The point is to say, if it existed, if God's grace was evident in their lives then, then what does that mean for me now? How have I been a recipient of God's grace what, it, what, what does it mean for me as I work through what it means to live in the way of Jesus, what it means to exist, what it means to hope for things, to feel a longing for something, to feel a little bit broken, to feel like I'm under some sort of a God-given authority, to have desires and wants and things that are longings that I can't quite shake, uh, to feel like I don't measure up, to have these feelings that I can't shake, that I don't measure up. What do I do with all of these loose ends? And perhaps God's grace if it has answers for them back then, might then have implication and answers for me right now as I try and survive and thrive and do all the things uh, here. So that's been the overall point uh, of this. We have spent three weeks in the Old Testament uh, at this point, and I mentioned uh, that uh, sometimes you have to look a little harder there, um, but, but I, I do think it's, it's very, very evident, and then we were going to transition to the New Testament. So today, we are going to be uh, into kind of a New Testament, sort of an obscure character within the New Testament. But before we go there, I left you last week. We talked about a story of a, a prostitute named Rahab in Jericho, and uh, she went from uh, like this, you know, living in, in a in a life with a lifestyle in a world and a worldview that was very negative to then being included in Matthew's list of where Jesus came from. Matthew, when he begins his gospel story in the New Testament, his his story about the person, the teaching of Jesus, we know as the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament, one of the easier ones to find because of that. He goes through this list of all of these names, this genealogical list, and in that includes someone. Uh, by the name of Rahab, this this person. Like, why would you include that? And it's it becomes a uh, a story or a big thing um, it, it, because in Matthew's argument for why Jesus was special, he starts with this family tree. He wants to kind of establish something, and this is a common kind of thing for us. You've been at a party somewhere where somebody says, "Where do you work?" And you say where you work at, and the next question is, do you know so-and-so? And you're like, listen, dude, P&L is a big place, right? Uh, WRPS is huge. I, I did that this week. Do you, you work at, do, you, do you know so-and-so? And they're like, do you know how many people work in my business? Like, of course, no, I don't, right? And we live in the Tri-Cities too, so it's not just who you work with. It's also times who are you related to, right? Like, we're, we're small enough that you could go to people and be like, who do you know? I'm related to them, I bet, Right? 
So like I was at a meeting this week. We had a meeting with some business owners in the, in the uh, uptown here. And some guy comes up to me, shakes my hand, older guy. And he says, uh, he says, hey, you're the pastor of this church that meets here, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you're married to a Brady, aren't you? That's my wife's maiden name. I was like, I am. And he goes, we're related. And then, <laughs> and then I said, we are. And he's like, and then he creates this like web of trees that kind of goes up into people I've never heard of, right? And I'm, I feel like I'm pretty well connected to her family. But apparently we were related. And he wanted that to be known, like we're, I'm cool to talk to. Like if you, need a, if you need somebody to talk to in this meeting, like we're cool. We go back a long ways. And we both married into this. We have no blood relation whatsoever. So anyways, but that's like what we do. Like sometimes we create, stories and narratives about who we came from, some sort of like a personal pedigree to try and buy into like, I'm trustworthy, I'm relevant, I'm, I'm this, and, and you, you should let me in. I should be, become a part of a circle or whatever the case may be. And, and there's definite reasons for why Matthew, when he decided to kind of say what he wanted to say about Jesus, begins with a genealogy. And oftentimes you do it to establish some sort of pedigree. That makes sense for a lot of people. For a Jewish audience to even consider Jesus being a possible candidate for the Messiah, he must at least be Jewish. And so if you are gonna make an argument for a Jewish, this we think this one is the one that we've all been waiting for. Like first and foremost, you have to be like, is he Jewish? Because if he's not, we'll just stop right there. In the same way for us as Americans, did you know that there are three constitutional requirements for you to be a U.S. president? The first one is this. You must be a natural born U.S. citizen. You have to have been born here. If you're not born here, we can stop the conversation right there. You have to be at least 35 years of age. You know that? 35 years of age. Everybody, now, here's the deal. I say, do you know that? Most people know the first two. But I'm, I'm going to go out on a, 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 what do you call it? A limb. That's what they're called. I'm going to go out on a limb. <laughs> and guess that you don't know the third one. Now, I did have somebody who teaches U.S. history after service come up and give me the right answer in the lobby. And I was like, okay, I owe you a coffee. But for the rest of you, if you think you know the third constitutional requirement for being a U.S. president, then write it on the Connect card. I'll, I'll buy you lunch if you're right. No, no Googling, no cheating, but that's how this is gonna work. Anyways, I'm not even gonna give it to you. I'm gonna literally leave it right like that. I'm gonna lose your focus for the rest of the time and be like, what is that? What is that? What's he saying? It doesn't matter. What is that last thing? Anyways, all right. So that is, uh, the, the, the part. Had, had Matthew stuck with the typical genealogical storyline, this explanation would suffice. Perhaps Matthew is just trying to make sure people go, okay, he's qualified to be Jewish. Dutch, you're looking it up right now. I can see you in the front row. Don't cheat. <laughs> I see you right now. You got your phone out. You're cheating right now. Yeah, yeah, put it away. Yeah, I'm checking my fantasy football. It's over. Fantasy football's over. Yeah, oh, he's got a flip phone. He's like, I got a flip phone. It's a brick. It's not even... Well, I, I don't even know what you're doing then. So get yourself a new phone. I guess that would be my expectations for that. Sorry, I don't usually call people out, but Dutch is okay. We're friends. We play poker together. It'd be great. Uh, okay, where was I? Hey, okay, Matthew is about to launch into an epic story of grace, a story that for many in his Jewish audience would seem a bit disconnected from, his old, from their Old Testament narrative. He's about to go into who Jesus was and they're, it, naturally they're gonna think, well, that's different than everything that we knew. This must be something new. And Matthew goes to great lengths to be like, this is not something new. This is the full embodiment and the expression of the same God that has been working at this for a very long time. He is very Jewish. He's been like this. God's grace is not a new evolution. It's not something new that came out of this. God's grace has been evident in all of us. The purpose of this series, Matthew's doing this on a big level as he tries to make the case for Messiah. He was about to suggest that God was concerned about 
everybody, everybody, not just a select group of people who'd been specially chosen by God. Because the Old Testament uh, massive thing is this was about a people. And it really is. When you read the Old Testament, when you read Jewish scriptures, it was about Israel that God specifically chose Israel to live a certain way. There would be a witness to who, the greatness of God above all the other gods in all the rest of the world. It was very much about a people. And he's about to say, listen, but God's interest does not stop there. And we know this because Matt, the way that Matthew ends his gospel, and like a good English teacher, when you were growing up, they, they would come to you and be like, what do you want to write about? And you'd say, this is what my paper's going to be, paper's going to be about. And they would say, what's your conclusion, right? What's the, what's the end? Start with the end in mind, they would say. Figure out what you want to say and then work backwards from there. And if that holds true, then what we see with Matthew is, yeah, here's Jesus, here's who he was, here's who he went, here's who he talked to, here's who he healed. Here's where he uh, multiplied loaves and fishes. Here's where he got uh, arrested, Here's where he got unjustly put on trial. Here's where he got crucified. Here's where he rose again. But how does Matthew end? How does Matthew end? Matthew chapter 28 ends with Jesus saying, having a few last words with his disciples. In the classic movie trope, if you hear only one thing from me, if you take away only one thing, these are his last words. We put a, we put a premium on somebody's last and final words. And his last and final words to his disciples, Matthew chapter 28, we know it as the great, Commission, go ye into all the world. He didn't say go ye. That's me, my old King James Version heritage coming out. Go into the entire world and tell them about me, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That Matthew is trying to get across to a group of people that God's grace is accessible for the entire world. And in order to do that, he reaches all the way back into the history of where Jesus came from. And he begins to tell a story of God's grace. And as he does it, he picks and chooses people who would be forgiven incredible things, that, that he would forgive the most heinous sin, that he would choose and use the most inappropriate people. And I'm sure Matthew is sitting there and he would say, and if you know me, you would know it when I say people like me, that God has grace and his grace is big enough and he continues to work with, has worked with, has a, has a track record of doing this, of working for and being about people like me. And Matthew knew that better than most. The story of Jesus is the story of God drawing near to those who'd been pulled away by sin and were subsequently pushed away by the self-righteous. That what we're gonna see over and over again in the life of Jesus, is, and Matthew says, as I knew him, was he had a, a unique affinity toward, for people who by themselves and their own decisions had allowed sin to kind of detach them from what they know they ought to be. I had this feeling of where I should be. I know I'm not there. So I've detached myself by my own decisions. And then the self-righteousness of others and or the shame imposed on by myself to keep me running away. Here's the thing about history. As he's gonna say, the history of Jesus has important and informs us about what we know about him. History for you, I don't know where you're at in terms of history. I love, I love reading history and that's not always been true. Uh, I feel like in grade school and elementary and high school, I never like really like was into history all that much. I was much into other things. Um, and then uh, I, when I graduated though, I, I really like since then, since then I feel like that's been my niche. I don't read math 
textbooks. I, you will never catch me at Starbucks being like, oh, quadratic formula, man, I haven't gotten into this in a while, right? I don't really typically read science stuff. I'm like, Bill Bryson would be as far as I would go, like your brain and this is how it works. And I have to read those like sparingly. I have to read one of those and then like take a month off. You know what I mean? But history stuff, history about uh, how World War II went down, like stuff with the Manhattan Project, like that stuff, my, my bookshelves are filled with that kind of stuff. I, I, I love uh, anything like that. And so and what, what I remember most uh, too about, about history nowadays is, is a couple of phrases that have stuck with me as I read history. Uh, one being that this, history is written by the winners, right? We always have a certain narrative and certain things are kept and history is told by the people who survived. It's like a survivalist theory. The only reason we have uh, stories of how great the Roman Empire was or how great the British colonial system was is because it was written oftentimes by the winners. So you have to take that into effect when you look at world history and, and, and how things kind of play out. There's always stories at play. But also, much of what we read about in ancient history, as we go back even further, was written by commissioned employees. So we're talking several hundred years ago. The further back that you go, the more likely it is that it wasn't the kings and queens and Caesars and czars who had the pen in their hand as they were writing down how history happened, but hired hands, commissioned uh, employees who would write about the greatness of the Roman Empire, the greatness of the Turkish Empire, the greatness of this, people who were paid, who were educated, and you're gonna come tell my story. And if you could, because I'm paying you and because I could have the ability to be like, you're dead, you're gonna say good things about me. You're gonna highlight all my accomplishments. You're gonna downplay all my faults. That's how it oftentimes works. Or in other words, make sure I look good. And we get this too in terms of, we're not all that far removed in modern day sensibilities of interviews. You hear about PR people being like, you're gonna do this interview, but then you're gonna send it to my PR app. They're gonna look it over. Before you publish it, we, need to, we have the rights to kind of veto anything that my, my current client might say in the process that wasn't actually true. We're gonna veto. You, you always, when you read a version of something, you get a polished version of it. Whether it's written story or whether it's a video edited story, it's oftentimes a polished version of this. We highlight these things. So some of the, uh, even uh, in today's society, you would go to Barnes and Noble today, you would see books that would say authorized biography of so-and-so. You know what an authorized biography is? It's somebody else who wrote a story about somebody that we met and I met, you know, we had several dinners with Tim and I, I learned about Tim's life and we did all this stuff, but then Tim got to decide what got included and not included in that book. I, I had some say, but he had some say too. And if he was like, this will not be published unless, uh, unless you take that out, right? That's an authorized biography. The funnest ones to read, by the way, are the unauthorized biographies, aren't they? Or the, the most honest versions of what took place are oftentimes only published after the person has passed on. It was famous a few years ago when Walter Isaacson did his biography of Steve Jobs, of Walter, who's, you know, at some point you get to be such a, uh, an astute author or person that you, be, have, you have the ability to have demands to be like, I'm gonna say things that you might not like. And Steve was uh, pretty famous for being like, you, just, you say whatever you want, say the story. And, you know, then we know the story he passes on and, and the story comes out, but, and it doesn't make Steve look all that great in, in a big light. But some of the best biographies are the ones where it's like, this is the honesty of what took place, the blemishes and all. We identify with those most. That reflects true humanity the best, as opposed to just they all everything they touched turned to gold. They won every time. That's just not real life. You know what I mean? So it's interesting when it comes to these biographies, people, the story that Matthew decides to include and what he says is as much as important as what he doesn't say. Let's bring it in even one step closer to you because you're probably, I don't, I'm not trying to disparage your life, but there's a good chance you're not gonna have an authorized biography in your life. I'm not going to, probably. If you are, then let's meet afterwards. I'd love to do coffee. Um, but 
in our modern day version of it are what we used to do as Christmas letters. Remember Christmas letters, guys? When you'd send a card out and be like, here's the story of how our life's going, right? And here, here's what we did this last year. And mostly we like put it all into like a Facebook post now because we're cheap and we don't like buying stamps. But we used to send out letters. And remember when you'd get letters from people, it'd be like the highlights of all of their year. And they'd have multiple kids, but there would be some kids that would get more real estate than other kids. You know what I mean? This kid graduated recently and he's trying to decide between Harvard and Yale and he's so smart and he's on his debate team. And then Ben survived eighth grade and then we move on. You're like, poor Ben, had a bad year, rough one. Not a lot going on in Ben's life, right? So sometimes it's as much as what you say as what you don't say. So it's interesting, all of those with that kind of a backdrop in mind when Matthew sits down to write his genealogy about where Jesus comes from, it's, in, it's important for what he includes and perhaps doesn't include. And what's strategic about him, if he's trying to make a case for Jesus being the Messiah, if there were any tampering with the bloodline, it would be for the purpose of cleaning it up, not cluttering it up. So perhaps the thing that makes me feel like this is the most honest is as we're gonna read in today, uh, in, in the verses today, what Matthew does to try and make a case for Jesus, he kind of highlights some things that are, you would think would be detracting towards his argument. Do you know what you're doing here? You're kind of robbing yourself of an opportunity to do this. And yet there's a sense in which there's an honesty to it that we can appreciate because we're so used to people only telling what they want to tell you and highlighting certain things. Like you ever ask somebody how their most recent trip to Vegas went? And they're like, oh, great. Did you make any money? We had so much fun. (laughs) Did you lose any money? Again, we had so much fun. Even if they did tell you how much they lost, like double it. You know what I mean? Like that's how that works. It's funny. Matthew seems to feature some of the more flawed individuals in Jesus' lineage. Instead of glossing over them, he highlights them. Examples, and we touched a little bit about this last week, so I'm gonna breeze through the first ones and then end uh, on, on a different story. But this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac is the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. And his brothers, in week two of this series, we said, Judah, why is Judah the one that selected? Joseph was much better, was a much better brother. Judah was manipulative. Um, He was greedy. He had a dark side that was bad. He was influential for sure within the brothers, but like not somebody that you would (coughs) oftentimes want to like be a biblical hero. Why would you want to associate Jesus with Judah? Great question. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. (coughs) Tamar, we know that story. That was also came out in there. Tamar is the the one who has to take matters into her own hands and dress up as a temple prostitute, convince her father-in-law that he should have done the right thing by by having her marry his son and keep the lineage going. I mean, it's it's a dark story. Why include her? You didn't have to include women. Most genealogies in this time didn't include women. The fact that she's in there is like, what are you doing? And then also the fact that it's a dark side of this story. What are you doing really? Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. (coughs) Excuse me. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab, the, 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 the prostitute living in Jericho, the one who um, had all kinds of a, a family history, the one who doesn't really know what she's doing. And, and all, it's, it's crazy. The, she has a, a child, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth's great. She has an entire book in the Old Testament written to her. Her stories. If, you never have, if you haven't read uh, Ruth in a while, it's, it's very inspiring. It's very like, it makes you feel good and, all of these things. And yet her parents are Moabites. She's an outsider. She married into the Israelite family. She wasn't a natural born citizen. Obed, the father of Jesse. 
and Jesse, the father of King David. That's where we kind of left off in last week. And then, this is one of my favorite ones. David was the father of Solomon. You could have said a lot of things about Solomon. Solomon had a legendary story where he fell asleep at night and had a dream. And God said, I'm gonna, like a, like a genie in a bottle thing. That's like, like the whole thing. Like, if I could give you one wish, what would you want? You know, and the answer is always what? More wishes, right? That's what you ask for? A million dollars? With inflation, it's gotta be more like a billion at this point, right? Um, Instead, he goes, I want to be the wisest person who ever lived. I want people when they think of me to be like, that person lives his life with an exceptional level of wisdom. And that is appealing because you know people in your life that are like super wise and you're like, I just, can you just do my finances? Can you handle my life? And you call them when, you, when circumstances come up. We, we are attracted towards people with wisdom. So, so the, the fact that you know, Solomon is known by this, or this legend comes up about him, he was probably one of those individuals who operate with a high level of wisdom to which everybody goes, that must be God-given wisdom. He's been blessed in that way. The queen of Sheba comes and visits him one of the your, your palace is opulent, your whatever, but your ability to lead the nation with wisdom, that is amazing. So here, when Matthew's recounting this, David is the father of Solomon. It would be all natural. What we would expect would be the wisest person who ever lived. We'd be like, yep, check the box, move on to the next one. Instead, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Remember this story, the dark side of David, right? Who's he talking about here? It's Bathsheba. He sees her while she's bathing, murders the husband to get to the wife. This is an insane story about David and highlighting this, this factor. And then she doesn't even get a name in, in all of this. This is the son of a guy who was murdered because his wife was hot and the king was jealous. That's how this thing goes. Within the lineage of the Jewish Messiah was a handful of colorful characters, liars, swindlers, murderers, prostitutes, to which Matthew had to have been thinking, my kind of people, my kind of people. Remember Matthew, a tax collector, a trader, somebody who had sold his soul to work for the Roman government, get his paycheck signed by Caesar, takes money from his fellow compatriots and sends it off to Rome, keeps a portion for the process, gets filthy rich, sells oftentimes his own personal real estate to kind of buy into the licensing thing of this, it was not a spot to be in. There's a separate category for people, tax collectors and sinners. We can't even put them in the category of sinners. There's something worse than that. Tax collectors are worse than that. So Matthew, when he's writing this going, I know this about me and I know this about us. Listen, he, he, he recognized something too. When Jesus started his public ministry, there were clear delineations between the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the bad, the holy and the unholy, the haves and the have-nots. We do this too, don't we? We have a a weird natural ability to recognize where we belong and where we don't belong. Perhaps church has been that for you. Oftentimes restaurants are that for people. We go, we walk in and be like, oh, I am not dressed for this. You ever been shopping in like a big city? And your, your daughter, my daughter's like, oh, we gotta go into Gucci. I'm like, oh my gosh, what are you talking about? What are we doing here? You wanna smell something? You wanna touch something? Don't even, I think they make you swipe a credit card before you go in just to see if the limit's high enough for you to be able to buy something. But we will wander in because she rest, really wants to go in there. And it does not take long for whoever's the security guy at the door to look at me and give me a look of you don't belong here. And me respond with, I don't belong here. We both know there's something wrong here. One of these things is not like the other thing, right? It's clearly me, right? We have this. Here, here's how it oftentimes plays out too. This, is, this doesn't just take place on a socioeconomic level. Um, I like to play basketball uh, in, in midweek. We do like this morning ball thing and we don't shoot for teams. We just show up and we just naturally go, okay, let's, uh, let's do the U4 and, uh, on U4 or whatever. And, and, and I've been doing this for years. And listen, nobody has to like 
Nobody has to be like, how good, what, like on a scale of one to 10, how, how good are you, right? We all kind of know where we're at. And at this point, it just becomes, there's, there's no language of, I'd like to play on his team today. Well, no, that's not an evenly based team. We, we know where we stand. And oftentimes when, when they begin to pair me with the guy who also fought in the Vietnam War, I understand where I'm at from a skill level. You know what I mean? Um, so we, we do this. We show up in places and we go, okay, there's a natural affinity towards towards this. And it's not just people who look like us or talk like us or vote like us, but like there's a, whatever the factor is, where there's a, a, a survivalist game show or something, there's like sections that people divide off into. We know this. We do this naturally. We know where we belong and we don't belong. And unfortunately, what Jesus saw one day is that this taking place in the place where it was supposed to have be the least likely to take place. They had a place called the temple. And in the temple, this for them was the geographical location of where God is that God exists here. You wanna get close to God, you come here. You make sacrifices here, you walk away from here, you pay your, your penance, you do your dues, you do your something, you go this. We, we, we translate it kind of less so nowadays as I go to church and it's like a building, but you know, this is just a weird theater, right? Like none of you go, it feels so holy here. You're like, it kind of stinks. It's got a little twinge to it, right? That's what we say uh, about this. But, um, but, but for them, the, the, that was the spot. And in that, they had architectural breakdowns. If you were a Gentile, you could go as far as this gate. If you were a, 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 a woman, you could go as far as this gate. If you were a, a man who had been, you know, if you're a Pharisee or a, a part of the religious system, you go here. If you were a priest, you could go here. If you were the priest of the, of the day, like the, the holy priest, or the high priest, whatever, you could go here. And the closer and closer and closer you got to God himself represented as the holy of holies and all of this. So structurally, it was like, you know where you stood when you showed up, how far you were allowed. We know you can't go here. Don't ask, don't, don't go beyond this. And Jesus is like, this is, I, I've seen how this, and Matthew is trying to, illustrate a Jesus who wants to break this kind of structure down and be like, this God, the God of the universe is accessible to anybody, anywhere, no matter what. And you've made these structures so it doesn't feel like that for them. So he illustrates a parable. He's like, one day this happened. And, and oftentimes I talk about parables and being like, they, you know, keep in mind, parables are just made up stories. These things didn't happen. And I would agree that this probably falls in this character, but based on a true story would be fair enough in this, in this one, because I'm sure that this happened. Luke chapter 18, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. As far on the spectrum from an ideological standpoint as you could get in the perception of the people of that day. Someone who was really, really good and someone who was really, really bad. The two men, uh, the, or sorry, the, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Loud enough for sure for other people to hear. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, husky fans, or even like this tax collector. That was an edit. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all of I get. No question, talking about himself loud enough so that there's a clear delineation of who belongs and who does not belong in this. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast. And he said, God, have mercy, mercy on me, a sinner. One group who are not as good as they think that they are, another who, uh, who know they are not as good as they need to be. One group who are not as good as they think that they are, another who know they're not as good as they need to be. The self-righteous chased away, or self-righteous chased sinners away and their own shame kept the sinners running. Another story, again, of how our sin separates us. Our sin causes a little breakage in this and to get us to unsettled to know that something's broken and something's wrong. And then self-righteousness imposed externally from other people, but then also the shame involved internally keeps us running. 
Jesus sees this. This is a human condition. This is how things unfortunately work. And Jesus says, yes, but not here, but not in this temple, not according to the, the religious system that I want to be a part of and I want associated with my name. Jesus saying that shouldn't be. So one day, Jesus, as Matthew would write, shows up at the tax collector booth owned by Matthew and says the same two words to Matthew that he said to Peter, James, and John, and all the other disciples. Follow me, follow me. Matthew says that day, I turned the key in my tax collector booth and I walked away and I engaged and embarked on a new adventure that I had no idea was going on. One of the first things he did was throw it up through a party for all of his hoodlum friends, all of, all of his buddies. We call them Matthew parties. They're one of my favorites. He's like, I'm, I'm, I've got some friends, but they're, they're a little rough. You ever been to those parties? You ever had that? You ever, you ever been to one of those things where people are like prefacing what you're about to experience? Like, it's gonna be bad. It's gonna be, it's gonna be, it's gonna be loud. It's gonna be something, you know what I mean? He shows up. And there under one roof is righteousness personified in Jesus, celebrating right alongside righteous or unrighteousness on steroids. People who were nothing like Jesus liked being around Jesus. One of my favorite phrases about that I think about all the time. People who were nothing like Jesus liked being around him. And he, weirdly, for some reason, liked being around them too. He wasn't uncomfortable about it. He didn't put up with them. He fit right in with them. The most common critique that we get about Jesus from the self-righteous in this is, ah, he's someone who eats and drinks with tax collectors. He dines with sinners and tax collectors. I wish that that was the tagline of our church or myself. Like I've oftentimes thought about changing my social media bio to that, dines with sinners and tax collectors. I think that would be fantastic, a great story, a great testament to it. I don't think it would translate as well. I don't think that people, that are like tax collectors, IRS agents, you're like, no, 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 biblical. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it breaks down. It doesn't work anymore. But that man eats with sinners and tax collectors. They had no category for this and no patience for it either. To which Jesus then in no uncertain terms and in multiple different ways would often say something to the effect of this. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Or another way, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call those who think that they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. Because after all, grace is inviting to the unrighteous and threatening to the self-righteous. In the years that followed, it would become clear to Matthew that Jesus was God's grace personified. And this is his attempt to kind of understand that he would watch him touch the untouchable, socialize with those who occupied the fringe of decent society, perform miracles for those who didn't deserve him and could never repay him people who did not belong, who knew they did not belong. He elevated the status of women and children. He paid his taxes. He fed strangers and loved his enemies. And he only really got frustrated with one thing, as Matthew could remember. And that thing was graceless religion. He did have, a, he did have an angry side. He once flipped tables over. And it was because there was a religion, because the name of God was being associated with the exclusionary stuff of they don't deserve it and they know they don't deserve it. They need to be reminded of how much they don't deserve this. Taking advantage of them, creating up barriers for them that would cause them to rethink involvement in the religious community. Make them think that they're not good enough. And to, to, well, and the reality for them is to say, it's not that you're not good enough because nobody is good enough. We're all recipients of this. That grace permeates each and every person in this story. 
that Matthew's trying to say, listen, grace has been involved in this from the beginning. It's Jesus's grace personified, no question about it. But the one thing God had no ability to hold off on was graceless religion. The invitation Jesus gave to Matthew is the same he gives to all of us, each and every one of us, simply to follow me. The reality is that we all have a history with bouncing back and forth between judgmentalism of others and self-inflicted exile. We call this sometimes hypocrisy. We call this something that, you know, this is why I don't go to church. This is what kept me away from it. This is going to get me. But judgmentalism of other people. I have opinions of how you should do things and what you should do. And then oftentimes my guilt is exposed and it's now self-inflicted exile. It's the same thing I just said about earlier about this, like per my last email thing. I love it when, when I need it. And I hate it when I'm expected to give it of you. I'm judgmental of others. I don't want to extend it to you. It's disturbing for me to have to give you, to be in a position to give you grace. And yet when I have it, it's the thing that I crave the most. Because oftentimes when I find myself in this, I, I, I know that my decisions have set me apart and removed me from where I ought to be, what I want to be. And yet I stay there and I keep running the opposite direction because of either external, you know, self-righteousness of other people. But oftentimes, again, if I was to be honest with myself, my own self-inflicted exile of shame, I don't like what I've become. I don't like this. So I move on. The way of grace is offered to everybody, regardless of who they are. And the story that Matthew so desperately wants to get across to his audience, and I do think he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience. He's trying to pull people to think Uh, forward about where they are and who they are and to see grace everywhere and to then go, if it's here, perhaps it's here. If If it's evident in all of these stories, if it's evident in all of these jacked up people, then you and me, maybe it's evident for you too. Maybe it's part of your story too. Maybe the reality is that you can never be good enough, but you know that, you feel that. He's like, you can never be good enough. And some people are going, well, I mean, you know. And then, the, then there's the rest of us be like, I know, I know. And the story would be like, you don't have to be. That is the way of grace. That is the way of grace. And the invitation is to accept that, not to earn it, not to do anything for it. And if you do enough, then all this grace is for you. If you can check enough boxes someday, then perhaps you too can be a recipient of grace. And the invitation is the same invitation that he did by Peter's boat on the beach that day, the same day outside of Matthew's tax collector booth, the invitation to follow me. So may we be a people who live with an understanding of not just God's grace as evidenced in the scriptures, of, in the story of people who experience it themselves, but may we somehow make that transition to even us too and go, God, your grace in my life. I have been undeserving. I am still undeserving. Even me recognizing it does not make you go, okay, finally I can give it to you. I can never be good enough. I'm thankful that I don't have to be. That is the way of grace. If we can learn to accept it. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that even though we sing about it, we write poems about your grace, we read about it, We know that it's kind of one of the things that comes. It's like love, grace, peace, all that kind of stuff. We categorize it. Oftentimes at Christmas time, it'll be on cards. We'll we'll, we'll see it. There'll be some certain hymns that that highlight it, certain songs that we sing, praise songs, worship songs, whatever. 
But if it's just words on a screen and we don't really feel the impact of it, if we don't feel like it's, uh, it is the undeservedness of it. It is the fact of, it's not in addition to anything else. It's not something that we earn, but it's been what you have been about. That Jesus was the personification of it in its purest form, but you didn't change, your mind wasn't changed, that your grace has been evident from the beginning. If that holds true, then why, oh, why would it not be true in our life? May we wrestle, wrestle with feelings of undeservedness, brokenness, a feeling of not matching up, not living up to some standard that we hold ourselves to, let alone a God out there who exists. May that not be not something we go, oh, no, 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 that's fine. It's okay. May we go, it's true. That's true of me. I am undeserving. But you offer your grace even so. May we have the uh, wisdom to receive it. May we live in that way. Give us the wisdom to know why that might look like in our current life, in our situation. Encourage to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri Cities in your favorite app store.